Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to episode three of the Dunked On, hopefully, daily basketball podcast. I'm joined by Danny LaRue, who is probably wondering when I'm going to stop saying the episode number. Uh, What's going on, Danny? Doing well, not wondering that. I still do it in my head on the episodes that I host. (laughs) So uh, let's get right into it today. Only three games today. Uh, the, The first one that we got to look at that ended first and had some playoff implications was Toronto at Boston. You're our main guy watching that one. What'd you see? I actually saw a lot from Marcus Smart. He did a a great job pressuring the ball on Lowry, and I believe he guarded Lou Williams for stretches as well. He had a couple of big shots too. I wasn't focusing as much on that, but his defense was there. And Boston had a series of nice out-of-bounds plays towards the end of the game because there were so many stoppages in that game. And they beat... Toronto, a Toronto team that had a benefit to winning that game, at least before the results later on. And actually, they still do. And and that solidified the seven seed. But I thought Boston played better than I expected, and they ran some interesting lineups as well. Uh, Amir Johnson only played like 15 minutes. Uh, what was the story there? I know he was coming back from an ankle injury. Did, was he effective? How did he look to you? He looked all right to me. He definitely didn't seem 100% from what I could see. And then, yeah, hearing that he played less minutes definitely fit in with that. And that obviously hurt the Raptors. Their defense at various points was lacking. And Amir helps offensively, too. I, it kind of, in a way, was like Marcus Gasol in the Warriors game the night before, where he looked all right, but I understood why they were keeping him on a tight limit restriction. Yeah, it was interesting to see that the Raptors closed with a front court of Patterson and Hansbrough, granted against uh, somewhat of a smaller Boston front court. But yeah, you know, not exactly who you would have been expecting to see the Raptors playing up front in a critical game that they had to win if you were talking at the start of the year. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And. They've been playing Hansborough over Valanciunas in key defensive possessions this last week, at least. I haven't admittedly had watched a ton of the Raptors in the weeks before that, and it's still jarring to me because I don't think of Hansborough as any semblance of a stopper. Going back to Smart, I thought it was really good. I didn't pick this game up until the fourth quarter, but it was good to see him get some big dunks because he has really kind of not really been what he was advertised to be as a slasher and athletic guy coming out of college is good to see a little bit of that in his game tonight. Absolutely. He's played more this year, more of a spot up guy than a bald 
kind of ball-dominant driver, which is what I thought he would be. It's more like what he was in college, and he still has that in his game. His athleticism is great. You see it more on the defensive end than the offensive end, which does happen sometimes with young guys. But yeah, his he had a couple of really nice explosive moments, and it, it felt like whenever there was an important moment on offense or defense, whether it be a rebound or a steal, he was involved somehow if it was positive for the Celtics. So the last four possessions of this game were pretty fascinating from my view. I, I believe they're, uh, all four of them were baskets. Actually, the last five, I think, were all baskets. I, I uh, believe so, yeah. Yeah, so Boston scored to take a two-point lead uh, and, and got what looked like it was going to be a two-for-one with about, uh, I think, 33 seconds or so left. And while Smart had been fantastic all day, they inbounded the ball to Lowry, and he just blew right past Smart with no hesitation. There wasn't sufficient help at the basket, and the Raptors tied it. Then Boston came back. Uh, Evan Turner missed a tough contested jumper. Uh, fancy that. <laughs> and Smart flew in from the wing, uh, managed to deflect the rebound. Smart or uh, uh, Turner had a real nifty play where he tipped it to himself, and then he was able to find Tyler Zeller to give the Celtics the lead. The Raptors come back, did almost the exact same thing again that they had done the previous possession. It looked like Smart was trying to force Lowry towards the baseline, and he just blew by him. There was no help at all. And then that was with 2.6 seconds left, I believe, and then there was the final play. Yeah, when Jay Crowder made a not not the prettiest shot that went up, considering it was double contested and had lots of hands in his face, but he made it. So that was great for Boston. Now they're locked into the seventh seed. As Zach Lowe noted on Twitter, Hansborough actually did a great job of switching out on the screen to the corner for Crowder. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he just made a really tough fadeaway three from the baseline. It was an unbelievable shot. It was. And there was another play earlier. I believe it was one of those we couldn't figure out exactly who was to blame, and it was either Hansborough or Ross. The Celtics got a wide-open look on it, and it was good to see Hansborough redeem himself with that quality, and sometimes good offense does beat good defense. So what are the implications now that uh, the Celtics won and the Raptors lost? So the Celtics winning locks them into the seven, regardless of what happens, so that means we get to see Celtics versus LeBron again. And for Toronto, it has some pretty devastating consequences because... Now the Bulls have the advantage going into the last day of the season in terms of getting the three, which, as we talked about yesterday, is a very good thing for them. Now they're in the situation kind of like Oklahoma City where they need to win and Chicago needs to lose because even though Toronto has the tiebreaker, you have to have a tie to break. Well, it's so interesting because they have a lot of free agents over the summer, they are going to have to decide whether to pay Valanciunas as well. He uh, will be extension eligible. Amir Johnson is a free agent. Lou Williams is going to be a free agent. And they're really going to have to decide now on the direction of this franchise. You know, Do they try and maybe move someone like Lowry if Masai Ujiri decides we're too far away from potentially contending? Uh, is that politically palatable? A lot of that depends on do they win a playoff round. And if they'd gotten the three seed and played Milwaukee, they would have been a pretty good favorite to win that playoff round and look like they're making progress over last year and there would have been some impetus to keep the team together. Now if they play Washington, they may have a much tougher matchup uh, and you know, we'll talk later about who we think would be favored 
in that series if it doesn't indeed end up being the matchup. But it reminds you that how much can really be resting on something as small as a fadeaway corner three by Jay Crowder in game number 81. Yeah, and you could think about it as something small like that, but also the Raptors didn't play tomorrow Rosen in this game, which was jarring to me because tomorrow they play a Hornets team that hasn't been trying for a while now, and they're so hurt that they can't. It'd be hard for them to beat the Raptors anyway. So it felt to me, and and from what I hear, that was more of a rest-based decision than an injury-based decision. So you have to think that if they had managed that differently, that they could have potentially won both games and reaped that benefit. Yeah, well, or maybe you can say they like the matchup with the Wizards because they've beaten them 3-0 in the season series, and then they would have the Hawks instead of the Cavs. So, you know, the, there might be something to that as well, but they also played hard in this game. It's it's really weird how a lot of these teams don't really seem to have a coherent strategy, as it were, coming down to the end. All right, we're not going to play DeRozan uh, because this game doesn't matter that much, but now we're going to try really hard and, and force this team uh you know, down the stretch to make a miracle shot to beat us. Uh, it's interesting that teams will rest guys and yet still play everyone else. It, it Sometimes it doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Or if they happen to be Randy Whitman and play their starters more than 40 minutes in a game when they have a game the next day. So let me ask you something. Did you watch that whole game or at least the, the end of it? I watched the end of it. I watched basically the the beginning and the end of it. So are you with everyone on Twitter who thought that this was just like the greatest eyesore known to man? No, I mean it was it was rough. It had its patches, but I've seen worse I've seen worse NBA games. It was I saw the fourth quarter of the Warriors Grizzlies game which was way worse. But it <laughs> it was it was hard because what what I kept on thinking about it with that game was these are two playoff teams and these are the, for the most part the starters on these two playoff teams which is very different than the backup battle in Golden State last night it's different with that I didn't think it was that fun I was I also was thinking that if that was a series I would avoid it like the plague but it's probably not going to be a series you know I I actually kind of enjoyed it I got made fun of a little bit for for saying this but I'm going to stick to my guns because. I wouldn't obviously want every basketball game to be like this, but those guys were really, really competing hard. I mean, you had Roy Hibbert contesting everything at the rim, sprinting back as, as fast as he could. David West was on one leg by the end. It looked like George Hill was on one leg by the end. Uh, Vogel and Paul George, the competitors in them, caused them to bring him back uh, in excess of what his theoretical minute limit was and he looked fine I, I wouldn't criticize them for that uh and it was nice to see Paul George hit a really tough tying shot that with about 20 seconds left I think in I can't remember whether it was regulation or the first overtime but uh to keep their playoff hopes alive essentially and it, it was good to see PG out there doing that and uh good to see the Pacers uh be able to stick it out and, and keep their hopes alive for one more night Absolutely, and that was that was the first overtime. And not only did they keep their hopes alive, but they have a much better chance now than they did because now they're in the same situation that um, that that uh, Chicago was in in terms of that they either need a win or a loss the other way in order to get in the playoffs, which is substantially better than needing both to happen, which is what they would have needed had they lost. A couple more strategic points for, from this game that are a little smaller. One was that the Pacers had a lot of success with a 1-3 pick-and-roll when George was in the game. They were really the Wizards uh, when Otto Porter guarding 
Paul George were really sticking to George. George Hill was able to get in the lane and either score or set guys up for some open threes. Uh, that was really effective. And then, of course, the, the Washington offense, which everyone was just lambasting on on Twitter, uh, was an abomination in, uh, you know, really the whole game, but especially in the fourth quarter in the overtimes. Yeah, and I think it was one of the last possessions of the first overtime. I think Bradley Beal was the only wizard who touched the ball. And while Bradley Beal is a very good basketball player, you have John Wall there, and he's just kind of standing around. So I felt bad in that sense. Now, uh, I can play devil's advocate here a little bit. People were criticizing that Beal was getting the ball. This is a meaningless game. The point, theoretically, is to get guys some reps in a clutch situation when it doesn't matter that much. So why not give Beal a chance to potentially build some confidence or at least get some experience trying to score in those situations? That's that's fair if you're going to go with that, but it seems to me that if you're going to play your starters 40-plus minutes in a game, it matters at least a little bit to you. So I, I see the balance in that, but at the same time, they did still have something small to play for at the time because if they had won that game, they would have had an outside, outside, outside chance at the four seed. It probably wouldn't have happened, but... That's that's a more ludicrous case. I think that there is something to be said there. It's something similar to what Coach Curtis said about the Warriors, that you want to get those reps in those meaningful moments, even this close to the end of the season. So you certainly do have a case there. All right, so now what are the implications from this game now for uh, the playoff seating? So for this game, the Wizards now are definitely the five. So that means they do not have home court against whoever ends up being the four. And the Pacers now are in the driver's seat to get this to get the last spot in the East. However, the matchups don't really work in their favor because Brooklyn faces the Magic, and the Pacers face a Grizzlies team that, while they have less to play for now, they still do have things to play for. So we can knock this out too. The Clippers are leading the Suns sixty-six to forty-three right now. It was a, a prescient decision by us to just start recording now rather than waiting till the end of that game. It looks like the Clippers are going to win it against a Phoenix team that only has eight guys healthy. That means that they're going to clinch at least the third seed. Uh, and, you know, that's definitely uh, good for the Clippers, although it takes away the chance of them being the five seed, which, as we talked about yesterday, might be even advantageous to having the third seed because in the third seed, you're going to have to play either Memphis, Houston, or I think possibly it could still be San Antonio. Yeah, so in in that round, yeah. So, yeah, there are some weird scenarios that are still out there. And you're not only getting that, but you're probably going to have a really rough second round too. So you can definitely say that. But at the same time, it's hard to say that the Clippers should have done anything other than try to win this game, especially with how much how many nebulous things there are that are outside of their control because today is their last game of the season so they can't put any you know English on the ball the equivalent of trying to adjust any future outcomes they just have to hope for the best and I can understand why they why they want the three so I agree with you that the five is probably a more logical path for them but you know I'm, I'm okay with the three and they have an outside shot at the two which would give them home court in every round other than if they face the Warriors in the conference finals okay so back to the east the Heat now have been eliminated with that Indiana win. Mm-hmm. Uh, that probably, frankly, is good for them. Uh, they play at Philly tomorrow, as we discussed last night. Philly has all the incentive in the world to lose that game because if the Heat win, that would 
possibly put the Heat into a tie uh, with either Brooklyn or Indiana, whoever doesn't make the playoffs. Um, and then there would be a coin flip to determine who is the 10th seed and who is who is the 11th. But at least now the Heat don't have any don't have any incentive to try and win that game either. So that will be uh, a rather fascinating tank off that we'll have to touch on at least a little bit on tomorrow's show. Yeah. The only thing that I'll mention is that since Indiana won, the only way that that happens is if Miami wins and Brooklyn loses, but that's still certainly a possibility. Okay. Well, so then in the West, what is, what are the scenarios now for tomorrow? If, if you're up on it, I am. So, the easiest way to think about it with the Clippers win is that they're guaranteed the two or the three. The only way they get the two is if San Antonio, the Rockets, and the, I think it's San Antonio, the Rockets, and the Grizzlies lose because then they're basically then it's the equivalent of they lose the tiebreaker, but if there is no tie to break, if the Spurs yeah, and that's win, and and to be clear that the reason that the Clippers would lose the tiebreaker to the best of those three teams is because whoever is the best of those three is the division winner. Is that correct? Exactly. And that's the same reason that Toronto had the tiebreaker over Chicago. It trumps any head-to-head or anything else. It's one of those decisions that the NBA has is that division winning is more important than anything else. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll have to quote my buddy uh, Doug Tonus on this one. He noted that that's ridiculous because as a division winner of a worse division, you have then had an easier schedule most likely than a non-division winner. Correct. And so really the non-division winner, it would be more fair if they had the tiebreaker. But, you know, that's uh, those are the breaks. The NBA likes its divisions. It really, really does for now. So, <laughs> so yeah, so base, the easiest way to think about it is that in all likelihood, the one of the Spurs or Rockets will get the two seed, then the Clippers will get the three, and then the, the five, six is going to depend on a series of other factors. And... What that does for the most part, it does a couple of things, but the main thing it does is it amplifies the importance of Spurs at Pelicans because now both teams have a lot to play for. So if the Spurs win, they are the two seed. Is that correct? Yes. What happens if they lose and the Rockets win? Then the Rockets win the division and... The let me just check my, this. The Rockets win the division and get the two seed, and then depending on what happens with the Grizzlies, the the Spurs get the five or the six. So Golden State's worst case scenario is still alive. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be something for everyone to monitor. Uh, you know whether they whether they end up in that five seed or not, and you could certainly make the argument that that's could be the best thing for the Spurs to be in that fifth seed for the reasons we've already discussed. Yeah, I I think that it would definitely be a different road for them. And I personally would be very disappointed if a potential Spurs-Warriors series happened before the conference finals, just because it would feel like, in some ways, the NBA finals as opposed to even the conference finals. Yeah, you know, it it might. Uh, So is there any scenario in which the Grizzlies can get the two seed? No, the Grizzlies cannot win the division now, so the Grizzlies cannot get the two seed. And because of the Clippers moving in, that means Memphis can only be the five or the six. But as we've talked about, the five could be a sweet spot for them, depending on how everything shakes out. So they have an incentive to win tomorrow against the Pacers. Okay. All right. I think that takes us uh, 
through that, why don't we move on to our next segment? Sure. So one of the events that happened over the weekend that you were lucky enough to cover was the Nike Hoop Summit. So I thought it'd be fun for us, for you primarily, to talk about your experience in Portland over the weekend seeing those young pups. For those who don't know what the Nike Hoop Summit is, I think it's the best by far high school all-star event. You have an entire week of practice. It's basically the best teenagers, uh, high school senior age guys from the United States versus the the best uh, under 20 guys from uh, the rest of the world. And so this was a, it was a really good game. Uh, the U.S. ended up losing by two, but it was really a beautiful game. Lots of shooting on both sides. Uh, definitely for those who claim that kids don't have any fundamentals and, and can't shoot or anything anymore, that watching this game would be a nice antidote to that relatively uninformed opinion, in my view. So... Why don't we start with the guy who I think is probably considered by most to be the best prospect there. And uh, that was uh, Scal Labisser, who is originally from Haiti, is a great backstory. Uh, he was actually uh, almost perished in the Haitian earthquake. And then after that, ended up emigrating to the U.S. He is a seven-footer. Weighs in at 216 right now. A little bit smaller wingspan than you might might expect for a guy like that at seven one and a half. Um, but he can jump out of the gym. I, I liken his game to if you've ever played pickup basketball against a volleyball player. That's kind of what is what his game is like. He's got a great two foot jump, and volleyball players when you play with them, they can always jump way better than you can but they kind of just jump as high as they can and figure everything out uh, on offense. And that's kind of what Scal does, but he's got a nice touch. And a lot of his game is based on just taking a dribble or a turnaround and exploding as high as he can and shooting a nice high arcing shot that he has a good touch on. And then he's also got great quickness and uh, good motor hits the offensive glass hard and uh, also reacts well defensively and is a very good shot blocker. Were you intrigued I, in the parts of the game that I saw? I was very intrigued by his potential down the road as a pick-and-roll defender because kind of in a way paralleling what I like from Willie Cauley-Stein is that he has the length and the athleticism to do some things there that a lot of true centers cannot do. Yeah, he's he's definitely has real good mobility, but I, I'm most interested really in his potential as a post-scorer one of the things that I, I think is becoming a bit of a lost art in the NBA is the turnaround jumper. You have a lot of guys, uh, coaches at some of the lower levels have really almost fetishized the jump hook at this point. And while that's a nice shot because you're less likely to get it blocked, it's also really tougher to actually make. And you got to get a lot closer to shoot it. Some The best post players in NBA history, guys like Elijah on, Kevin McHale, they used the turnaround jumper as really the foundation of their post game and all those up and unders that you'd see Akeem or Mikhail do, they were those were set up by the fact they could hit a turnaround, hit a fadeaway, and then get you leaning forward and duck under or spin past you. So the fact that Scal has the ability to make that turnaround and that it'll probably be unblockable, frankly, the way he shoots it with a high arc and a pretty high release point, that's what I'm most interested in. For him, uh, you know, in addition to his obvious athletic talents and, and ability to uh, 
get on the glass. The other guy that was generating a fair amount of buzz from the game is, I believe he won MVP, is Ben Simmons, Australian-born, going to LSU, though strangely the best players on LSU decided to go pro early. What did you see from him? So Simmons is uh, a legit 6'10", a little shorter wingspan, but very quick. I would liken him to a slightly less athletic young version of Boris Dia. He was definitely the if not the best, uh, the one of the top two best passers in this game. He can really get out and transition, handle the ball. He moves the ball like a European, which a lot of guys at, at his age don't do. You know, he, he sees the next pass and he moves the ball quickly. Um, so his playmaking is probably the most intriguing. Whether he is someone who can play the four full-time and really hold up the way Dia is, proven to be able to do uh i'm not sure about that yet because he doesn't quite have the length or the athleticism that young boris had what do you think of his jump shot because if he's going to play the four the ideal for him would be if he could stretch the floor from the four and play make like boris or like kyle anderson his now spurs teammate may end up doing yeah he's definitely way faster than anderson is and his jumper is a work in progress he doesn't have the greatest form He's a lefty. He actually has an amazing right hand, both dribbling, passing, and shooting floaters around the rim. So that's that's something that uh, he's better at than Boris, who has no offhand whatsoever. Um, but he's definitely going to have to work on his shot. Uh, but it's not his form doesn't look completely broken. I wouldn't say that he would end up being a guy who I think of automatically in a good draft as being a top three pick because I don't think he quite has the athleticism and much ability to be an impact defender. And I think he's much more of a playmaker than a scorer, but he's someone whose versatility uh, can certainly be very intriguing. It'll be, we have to watch his scoring the most at LSU to see whether he's someone who can really be a dominant player who you're thinking of as a top five, top three pick. Yeah, and especially because it's hard to draft a guy thinking he'll be a good player on a great team that high in the draft, because while those guys are incredibly valuable, generally the teams that are in the top five aren't at that position unless they get lucky. Like, let's say, with the Lakers' projected pick, if Philly moves a lot more between now and then, you know, you can get in a situation like that. But usually those teams don't get top five picks. So I'll I'll swing through the rest of the guys pretty quickly, and... and... There was a lot of real nice depth on these teams. In previous editions, we've seen a big talent drop off after kind of the top five, six guys on each team. That wasn't the case uh, for this team, although it's it, it, the 2016 draft is one that's kind of thought of as not having the highest amount of top-end talent. I think it's going to have some nice depth. One guy who's gotten a lot of publicity is Thon Maker. He's uh, out of, originally from Sudan but grew up in Australia no one's quite exactly sure what his weight is. He's, he is currently in the high school class of 2016, but he may reclassify, I believe, in, into 2015. And Maker is a guy who, you know, if you just look at his YouTubes, he's thought of as the next Kevin Garnett. He's not nearly that quick uh, or that smooth. He does have a nice jump shot. But he's really going to be more of a power player. He's not quick enough to put the ball on the floor and, and get by people. He's a seven foot with a seven three wingspan, but pretty small hands. So he kind of struggles to play as a pure power guy and finish inside. And uh, but I think he has some potential as 
more of a pick-and-pop guy and then someone who can move his feet well on the perimeter defensively. He's real thin, so he's probably always going to be a four. Um, it's hard for him to play five in the NBA. But I, I think he's someone who's more of kind of a top lower-end top 10, top 15 guy ceiling because uh, he doesn't have a ton of athleticism or strength. But he's someone who could be a real weapon as a pick-and-pop guy, I think, in, in the NBA. One guy I wanted to ask you about a little bit is he just committed to Cal, which is close to us, is Avon Robb from from Bishop O'Dowd in the Bay Area. Yeah, so it's Ivan Robb for for future reference. Good And he didn't really stand out as someone who screamed top five pick to me. He's he's about 6'9", with a decent wingspan, but not amazing, and good athleticism, but not amazing. Good form on his jump shot, but not amazing. There wasn't really a standout skill that blew me away with him, although he certainly will be a nice recruit for Cal. Any, um, any other guys that stood out to you? Yeah, so I mean, we gone this long without talking about the guy who had the best game, and that was Jamal Murray out of Canada. He actually played in this game last year, and I thought that he wasn't going to be quite athletic enough to really be a, a high-level prospect. He's a 6'5 guard, and... He's really a combo guard, pure combo guard, great shooter, just absolute money with his feet set uh, out to the FIBA three-point line. They play international rules in this game and and in Canada. And he also was great on the pick and roll. He was able to get to the basket, had one really nice dunk, uh, real good coming downhill in in transition. And he's really improved his athleticism and uh, his ability to get his jumper off. So he's going to be someone to watch as a potential combo guard guy. I think, you know, if you look at what he might project to in the NBA, you know, years out, of course, it might be as kind of a off-the-bench Jamal Crawford uh, type of shooter. I think he has somewhat similar athleticism to a guy like that. That's exciting. Anything else you want to share about the Hoop Summit? Uh, you know, the guy who I think still potentially has the best natural talent in this class is Jalen Brown on mm-hmm. the U.S. team. He's, he's out of George, I saw him for the first time at the Eurocamp last year, and he was awesome at that. He's going against guys two and three years older than him. He looked like the best athlete in the gym. He was bouncing off dudes, finishing at the basket, blocking shots, uh, hitting his jumper out to the uh, FIBA three-point line and even the NBA three-point line. The times I've seen him since then, he's always been able to create a shot off the dribble. He didn't have a great game. He was only two for nine. Uh, and and struggled, but and he also had a little bit of a, a knee issue, I think, during the week. But despite his great athleticism, he doesn't make enough of an impact in the floor game, and he's going to have to learn to play a little harder. When he really concentrates and locks in, he can move his feet very well defensively, and he's someone who I think if he gets it, if he can kind of develop more of that Stanley Johnson, Justice Winslow type of motor, He's a real, a, really a better athlete than Stanley and maybe even better than Justice. Definitely a smoother operator off the dribble. There's a lot of hope for him, but it has been dampened a little bit the last two times I saw him at Adidas Nations last summer and then here because he wasn't quite able to impose his will on the game in any facet other than when he had the ball in his hands. Interesting. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun to see how he develops, and it's always great to be able to get a snapshot of those players at this point because they're still a little bit away from the NBA, and so you can see how they grow physically and how they grow in terms of their talent from here to there. He's a guy. He's uncommitted. 
And it'll be real interesting to see where he goes. I think next year is going to be very critical for him mm-hmm. developing in college and, and you know what his coach kind of demands of him. Are you ready to move on to the other new segment, the new segment that we're adding today? Yeah, absolutely. We solicited some questions on Twitter using the hashtag DunkDon, D-U-N-C-D-O-N. Uh, why don't I start with one uh, that I like. This is from uh, Mark Largusa at MCLGSW. Why is D. Lee absolutely terrible this year? You want to you weigh in on, on that question? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> I've been somebody who... I, if I was, you agree with the premise. I, I do agree with. with the premise. I've been on the I've been on the anti-D-Lee train for so long that it feels like I've never been off it. But I think the big flaw with him on this team is that while he's good at moving the ball, he can't really stretch the floor. And Coach Kerr does not have the same opinion on David Lee post positions. I was actually thinking about this last night that Mark Jackson at one point said that David Lee with his David Lee in the post was a quality possession every time. And I, I think part of it is that he his athleticism has waned a little bit and that has made it harder. But also they can get better shots than that now. And so I think that's a part of it and his defense has generally not been great and he's not getting as much time with Andrew Bogut, which obviously shielded a lot of his misgivings. Would you agree with that? I, I agree with most of it. I think he's Hasn't really dropped off much more than you would have expected due to the normal progression of age. I believe he's 31 now. Um, However, when he missed those almost two months with his hamstring injury, he did come back noticeably heavier. He'd gotten into unbelievable shape, at least for him, last year, and that really helped him. This year, uh, you know, he had definitely gained a few pounds and and lost definition. So I think that, that hurt him. And also just his role has changed. As you mentioned, he's not playing beside Bogut he's not playing with Curry so much anymore so I think when he's started he's been able to be effective in a similar though lesser magnitude to what he was last year but I, I think the factors just not being in shape and the role changing are the biggest issues all right you, you want to pick out a question now yeah I'll pick out a question the one I was there was another Warriors one that I was interested in and we can save that until we know a little bit but the other one that was interesting and you and I have talked about this before is if the top three seeds could pick their playoff foes, who do you think they would pick? And this was by Bobby Johnson, S-W-E-R-V-A-C-E. I thought it was a really interesting question. That's clearly Swervace. <laughs> Sounds Italian to me. Uh, so I think the, if we assume New Orleans or Oklahoma City makes it, the Warriors would pick them. Uh, if we assume the Spurs are number two... What do you think? Do they go Dallas or, or – or, no, they'd probably go Portland, huh? I would say they would go Portland. Dallas would be another option. I think Dallas is the other team, but I would say they'd go Portland considering how hurt they are. Yeah, and so then the Clippers probably go Dallas. That seems that seems pretty, pretty obvious to me. Uh, how about in the East? Part of me thinks that with how well Boston's been playing that they wouldn't be the first pick. I think if Brooklyn makes it, they're the first pick if, if – Indiana makes it, I would take Boston over them. Okay, so so you're, uh, I mean, I guess we'll just do this in a draft. So you're you're the Hawks. Who are you taking? You're taking Boston rather than Indiana? Yeah, if we're saying Indiana makes it, I'd take Boston. What about the Bucks? 
Yeah, I mean, there, you can certainly make that argument, especially with Atlanta particularly. I would I would say that that would be a more comfortable thing because Atlanta's just going to whoop them with spacing. But I think that Boston is a very winnable series for them, to me. Yeah, but all right. So, so you're you're taking Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. I think I think Cleveland goes with the Bucks because I don't think LeBron wants any of Roy Hibbert and, and trying to drive in on those guys. Uh, you know, Paul George probably won't be d- defending LeBron for much if if any of the game. But still, Indiana is is a great defensive team. Nobody wants to deal with that kind of a slog. Milwaukee is too, but I think it's a little different and. Milwaukee's switching isn't going to be as effective against Cleveland because they do a lot of one-on-one stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think Cleveland, in some respects, would, would relish that because LeBron wants to just back up, take a couple of dismissive dribbles that who, whatever uh, mere mortal is guarding him that's not his primary matchup, and then kind of hot dog and try and go by him. So I think they, they would enjoy uh, that matchup. And then, obviously, third is going to be, uh, I think, Boston is pretty clear rather or i'm sorry would be indiana it would be chicago would take indiana yeah do you do you think that if brooklyn was the eight seed that would change the decision making process for anybody oh yeah they'd be a clear number one i think for anybody is who you most but then cleveland would probably choose milwaukee anyway and then boston would slide down and, and face whoever the three seed is okay we got time for one more let's uh this is from uh one of my uh Good acquaintances, Angie Treasure uh, at Snark Tank, uh, who's uh, writes for Salt City Hoops, some out in Utah. If there were, were a runner-up for MVP in the East, who would it be? Ooh, that's interesting because, yeah, I mean, almost everybody that's lower on the list would be there. While I collect myself, do you have an answer? Well, let's think of some candidates. John Wall, obviously, is one. Uh Jimmy Butler, I guess, would be a, another candidate. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it, it gets it gets it, tough it gets, because there have been so many there have been it? so many injuries. Is the other factor in that? Because obviously, a guy like Paul George, if he had been healthy, maybe one of the Hawks, Al Horford, would probably be in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, the, the pickings are pretty slim, which I'm sure is what inspired the question. I did my top ten players in the NBA a couple weeks ago. And uh, nine of the top ten were in the West. Uh, I do I do have one particularly adamant Twitter follower who's telling that always telling me that Kyrie Irving should be in, in the top ten. What do you think about him potentially? I don't think in terms of this question, in terms of being the most valuable player in the the second most valuable player in the East. I don't think so. I love Kyrie's talent. I continue to, but his defense is still not there yet. And he's not the uh, his offense is nice, but he's not the straw stirring the drink. And it's hard for me to say that a point guard who isn't that for his team would be the second most valuable guy in the conference. Uh, so, what do you think, John Wall? Then, yeah, I'd say Wall and Horford are, are one two in either. Or, and I would I think you'd be fine with Horford there, but I would say Wall is more important right now to the Wizards than Horford is to the Hawks. But I think they're both valid choices. Yeah, I, I love Al Horford, but to me, uh, the ability to score and set up shots for others is still the premium skill in the NBA. And Horford, while he's a good defender, is not a great enough defender uh, to make that up for me. I'm going with John Wall. A uh, quick question on that. 
Kevin Pelton wrote a really nice piece talking about quality defenders at each position. He was talking about how the Wizards have been very good defensively this year, and a lot of us, including myself, are having trouble figuring out who to credit for that. Do you think that, despite point guard defense maybe not being the most valuable thing in the world, that Wall could be an important part in their defense as well? Yeah, of course he is. And, uh, you know, I think most of the numbers will tell you that Wall's been a top five point guard defender, both the the eye test will too. He's really long. He competes hard. And, you know, I wouldn't want to uh, give a short shrift to the Wizards' front court defense and even, you know, give their coaching staff a little credit. Randy, does, Randy Whitman doesn't have the greatest offensive system in the world, but he has presided over a good defense for these last three years now. And so you got to give him a little credit for that. If, you know, if we're going to blame coaches for their teams having a bad defense, we should give them some credit when they have a good defense. I agree completely. All right, well, uh, kumbaya in that case. Uh, that's, that's a good one to end on. Why don't we call it quits, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow when we know the playoff matchups. Till then. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. 